morning, everybody. I um, just want to add my, my comment or my, my own personal word. Um, we honor our moms. We're grateful for them. And um, we, um, we also really do think of um, all our moms and um, uh, women who are not moms that uh, today has its own meaning and um, unique to your life and what you've experienced. Speaking of mom, there's a children's song that goes like this. You may have sung it. The bear goes over the mountain. The bear went over the mountain. The bear went over the mountain to see what he could see. And all he could see, and all he could see was the other side of the mountain. The other side of the mountain, the other side of the mountain was all he could see. Anybody ever hear that song? Maybe it's just, maybe it's my generation, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, there's some, uh, I don't know thought of it or not, but there's really profound theology in that song. There's some very significant spiritual truth. Because, you see, essentially that's what the Bible says is characteristic of life without God. Put all your hope on what life gives you. It's like climbing a mountain and reaching the top and not finding what you hoped you'd find. It doesn't do what you thought it would do. And all you see is the other side. It's really true. You know, life is, is like climbing a mountain, or we could even say a, a series of mountains. And we all have our own mountain or mountains that we climb, and it's what it is that we hope to achieve or to experience or to possess. And what the, this world tells us is if we reach the peak of the mountain, we're climbing, it's then that we're going to have everything we need to give our lives lasting joy. In fact, uh, it's an easy thing to see people who reach the top and it looks like they're having the time of their life. And to think to ourselves, if, if I can only get there, if I can only get where they are, then I'll have all the joy that I could ever want. And the truth is, and we hear this over and over again, people who reach the top of the mountain that they've chosen, the mountain they were convinced would give them everything they needed for total and lasting joy, do so only to discover that it doesn't deliver what they hoped it would deliver. Now, it seems like there's different mountains for different ages and stages of life, and it starts young, doesn't it? There's this toy that you've always wanted your whole life, all nine years, you know. If I can only have that toy, I'll be happy forever. Anybody ever say that or hear it said and remember how long the joy lasted? Having the right friends is a mountain we began climbing at a pretty young age, actually, and grades go even younger and continued climbing in high school. And I'm, I'm guessing more than a few of us have thought, you know, if, if, if they would just like me, if I could just be a part of that group, 
then I'd be happy. And then we go through that stage in life when we think that joy is found in being able to do what we want to do and do it when we want to do it. It's easy to think that that's the top of the mountain to reach. That's, that's where the joy's at, only to find out that that joy is short-lived. I, I think that's part of going from adolescence into adulthood, and unfortunately, some people never make that, that particular transition. There's a career mountain. That job or position that you've always wanted, you work hard and long climbing that mountain, and you reach the top, and you achieve what you were working for, only to discover that it doesn't deliver the joy that you were counting on. Your mountain might be the house that you always dreamed of having. You climbed hard for it, you sacrificed and saved, and you finally got it. And now that you're there, it doesn't give you the joy that you, you thought it would. And I think we could, we could all if we spend some time thinking about it, make our own list of mountains that we've climbed. And when we got to the top, it didn't deliver the joy we expected. It, it, it might be that you're, you're at the top of one of those mountains right now, and you climbed hard and, and, and longed to reach it, and you're finding, though, you're finding it's not delivering the joy you thought it would. Oh, the joy was there for a time, but it didn't take long, and... The joy ran out. There's still something missing. (laughs) And you wonder what it is. You wonder what it is. I'm convinced the answer is found in the very first miracle that Jesus did. Because you see, the very first miracle that Christ performed had everything to do with joy. Joy that satisfies, joy that doesn't run out, joy that lasts for a lifetime. And John John wrote about this in the second chapter of his gospel, and the big truth that it teaches us, and this is what I would, if you're taking notes, this is what I would write down this morning. It's the thing most important of all for us to walk away with, and it's this, joy comes from knowing whose you are and who you are. Joy comes from knowing whose you are and who you are. It's really an exact summary of what we learn in today's scripture. And so, when God gave it to me, it's like, wow, this is it. And that's what I'd like to unpack for you today. And and I want to begin by reading the passage. The first 11 verses in the second chapter of John's gospel. Probably for some of us here today, we've read it, we can't. You couldn't even say how many times. It's really pretty wonderful. Listen to this. John chapter 2. On the third day, a a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, Why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. 
And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the, of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. This, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. And he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. First thing this passage teaches us is that there's a, a joy shortage. Cana was about four miles from Nazareth, and Nazareth was where Jesus grew up. So it's a good chance that this was the wedding of a, of a family member, maybe an extended family member. And if not a family member, it could easily have been the wedding of a lifelong friend. Weddings are Always a big deal, aren't they? Very significant for the two people getting married and for their family and, and friends. But, you know, it's true that some weddings are bigger than others. Bigger than others. Beck and I went to a wedding here in Omaha a few years ago. And the, it was a wedding where the parents went all out to make this one major event. And, and they had the money to do it from, from the wedding ceremony itself to the reception. And... There was this huge tent set up at a country club that they're members of. And I, I don't know, maybe I've, you know, I know I haven't been around a lot, but I've never seen as many people at a reception in my whole life. There were like 600 to 700 people there. I mean, the, everything was just decked out. It was absolutely, you know, beautiful, this place. And, and the meal, I mean, amazing, nothing spared. And I mean, I couldn't help it. Like I was kind of doing the, you know, boy, how much could this thing have cost? You know, doing the calculations and incredible. Weddings and wedding receptions when Jesus lived were very big deals. So big they were regional events and the parents went all out to make this the biggest day in the lives of their children. People were invited from all over. It was, it was a huge investment of time and money and work. And I got to tell you, the, the reception itself was as different as you could possibly imagine from coffee and cake and quiet little conversation, you know, at a, at a sedate party. That's not what it was. It, has anybody ever seen my, you know, my big, uh, my big fat Greek wedding? Anybody ever see? I mean, that's what we're talking, all right? I mean, it was a party, and all out a party. And so when the wine ran out, these people were facing a disaster of major proportions. This was about to become a huge embarrassment in front of their family and their friends. And see, the, the deal here, everybody, is the wine was the joy of the feast, of the reception. There's actually a rabbinic saying about this, uh, where there is no wine, there's no joy. 
The wine was the joy of the feast. And the way people saw it is, is if you didn't have wine and it wasn't good wine, the feast wasn't a feast. You totally missed it. Now, we're not told why they ran out of wine. Someone must have made a mistake. There had to have been some kind of a miscalculation. Something happened that wasn't expected. And this was about to become a very disappointing party for a whole lot of people on a very bad day for the bride and groom. And if you can imagine, a very, very, very bad day for mom and dad. So it was perfectly natural for Mary to come to Jesus and to say, have you heard? They're running out of wine. What, what, are, you know, what, are, what are they going to do? I mean, it was just a natural thing for Mary to do this. These were people she cared about. Jesus, however, turns around and made a very cryptic statement. We read it in verse 4. He said, dear woman, why, why do you involve me? I, my time has not yet come. The actual translation there in the Greek, he says, woman, my hour has not yet arrived. In the book of John, Jesus' hour, in fact, in all of the Gospels, the hour, that word is a reference to his death, to his crucifixion. And what I want us to see is that Jesus Really, there's something very startling and abrupt about Jesus' statement to Mary. Mary walks up and she says, they're they're running out of wine. This is going to be terrible. And Jesus turns to her and says, woman, why are you bothering me? I'm not ready to die yet. If I would have been Mary, I would have gone like, what? 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 There's only one explanation for this strange statement. Jesus is clearly, like a lot of us, sometimes get lost in thought, absolutely lost in thought. He's deeply stirred to the profoundest depth because he sees what's happened. Even even his mother's request as as a metaphor of his entire life. Sees the devastation that's about to happen. He sees the humiliation that's coming. He sees that the party hasn't delivered. He sees the wines run out. The disaster of this wedding, he begins to realize, is a metaphor for the entire reason he came. See, he knows the mountains you and I climb never take us where we think they'll take us. He knows what we think will give us joy, only gives it to us for a short time and never fully satisfies. He knows that lasting joy can only be found in him, and and he knows that it's going to cost him his own life. So you see, the reason Jesus is acting so strangely and and acting so sad and and so abrupt is that he knows that the only way that this joy is ever going to come to any one of us is through his hour, through his death. Here's Jesus in the midst of all these people, and they're laughing and they're singing at the top of their lungs and and they're having the time of their life, and and he knows it's about to end because the wine's run out and What he sees is the story of every person's life. 
And he knows that the only way that you and I could ever drink the cup of God's joy is for him to drink the cup of God's wrath. So, so what does he do? What does he do in response to his mother's request? He made the wine. He provided the joy that the party needed. I love Mary's response to this. It's just fun, you know. And last night, Becky and I, in fact, we always I laugh at this. We always listen to Garrison Keillor on Saturday nights, and he did this thing about how much humor is in the Bible, and I just think there's great humor here, you know. Mary's response, I mean, obviously she's used to Jesus saying this kind of stuff by now, and, and she turns to the servants and she says, don't let this throw you. Do whatever he says. Yeah. Well, actually, it's, that first part isn't in there, okay, but I think that's what she was thinking. Don't let, don't let this throw you. I mean, how do you say no to mom, right? And so pointing to the six water jars, not from far from where he stood, Jesus tells the servants to fill them with water, and they fill them right to the top, to the brim, and he turns it all into wine. It's a math with this. Six water jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Uh, that's 120 gallons total. So going with 180 gallons, we did some calculation on that. That's over 900 bottles of wine and over 4,600 glasses of wine. That's a lot. See how John describes this? First of all, verse 7 and 8, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. You know, I, I couldn't help but think, what would this have been like for those servants? I mean, imagine this. One minute you're filling these pots with water, and then the next minute he tells you, once they're all filled, he said, take that same, that same container and dip it back into the pot and, and then pull it out and bring, what, bring it to the, to the master of the banquet, the major d. Bring it to him. I mean, wouldn't you be tempted to look and see what you're bringing? You know, maybe... Put your finger in, you know, and I, I would, if that was me and I saw that was turned into wine, I'd go, how'd you do that? You know, I mean, wouldn't you just, I mean, and by the way, the, the master of the banquet, the maitre d', had no idea what happened. And he does what any good maitre d' would do. He tastes the wine to make sure it's up to standard. He's very impressed. He waves the bridegroom over, who I'm guessing was sweating big time by now, thinking this whole day is going to be a very bad day. And he says to the bridegroom, I am so impressed. Everybody always serves the, you know, the choice wine, the really good wine first. And then after everybody's had so much to drink, they don't even know what they're drinking anymore. They can't taste it anymore. They, then they bring out the cheap wine. But he said, man, you, you've, saved, you've saved the best wine for the last. Makes you wonder, doesn't it, what the bridegroom said in response to him? I, I think maybe he might have said, well, nothing too good, too good for my friends, you know. And, and I'll take it. Taking all the credit. I just love every part of this story. 
every part of it, all the way to, 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 to John's summary of it in verse 11, where, where he said, this, he writes, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. And then this statement, he thus revealed his glory, his deity, and his disciples put their faith in him. <laughs> Mary knew, the servants knew, the disciples knew this was a miracle. And I'm convinced that it's very significant, not, not coincidental, that the, that the very first miracle that Jesus did had everything to do with joy. He, he created 120 to 180 gallons of unusually good wine for a party. And you know what I would say? I would say it was the best wine ever. The best wine ever. I'd even say it's probably the wine that we're going to be served in the, in the Supper of the Lamb in heaven. I mean, can you imagine what it was like for the people who tasted that wine? It was like, whoa, I wonder how much they paid for each bottle of this stuff, you know? I mean, like, whoa. Oh. Oh, everybody, the message here for all of us is that Jesus came to bring joy. Joy that totally satisfies and joy that's never going to run out, never going to disappear, never go away. You know, some people say that Christianity is anti-joy, you know, that it, that it wants to take our, away our joy, that there's no joy in following Jesus, that, that Christians are, are people who spend their entire lives looking at, the, at others and saying, I don't find that funny. You know? But it's not true. This passage shows us that the very opposite is true. Jesus came to bring joy, the best joy ever, joy that totally satisfies and joy, joy that will never end. Which brings us back to the main point of today, this passage, and what I, what I shared with you at the beginning. It's this, joy comes from knowing whose you are and who you are. You know, I think it's very appropriate on Mother's Day to learn from one of the, this world's most famous mothers, if not the most famous mother, Mary. First of all, everybody, Mary knew who did this miracle. She knew this was the Son of God. I mean, I mean she had... She had this angel tell her that, you know, and she got pregnant and she knew there was no human father. She knew that the baby she carried was the son of God himself. And that's why she, I'm convinced she told him about the wine running out. She knew that he could make all the wine needed for this party. She knew that Jesus could make enough wine for every party that would ever be the best wine. But you know, I, I was thinking about the change in relationship Mary must have experienced with her son. What it was like for her to go from seeing herself simply as the mother of Jesus, the mother of the Son of God, to seeing herself the same way every one of us have, have to see ourselves to, to experience the joy that Jesus gave. Mary saw herself as someone who belongs to Jesus, belongs to him. Paul, Paul said it this way in his letter to the Corinthians in 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, and he's so right. He said, you're not your own. You're, you were bought with a price. You're not your own. You were bought with the nails that were put into the hands of Jesus Christ and into his feet and him hanging on the cross and him dying for us. And so, friend, I want just want to say to you this morning, if, if, if you've been climbing mountains and, and all you're seeing at, at the top is the other side of the mountain, and, and for you, the joy's never there. It, and it seems like there's always, it's always missing. There's, there's this emptiness. There's this void in your life. Boy, you know, the answer's in this passage. It's who Jesus is. The Son of God, he's the only true source of joy. He, he died on the cross for you to make it possible for you to be in relationship with him. And, and, and in this relationship experience, you know, joy that just never ends and it's totally satisfying. Totally satisfying. See, I'm, I'm convinced this is what Mary knew. And she knew what... Really, she knew what the disciples were beginning to understand. As John wrote in that 11th verse, he, he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Second, Mary knew what this meant for her. As wonderful as it was to be his mother, she knew it was far more wonderful to be his servant. I'm convinced that what she said to the servants can be said to all of us, can, can be said to you and be, can be said to me. Remember what she said? It's in verse 5. She, she said, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you to do. See, Mary's pointing us to servanthood, to serving Jesus, and in serving Jesus, serving others, and and really, the truth is, there's no greater joy than the joy that's found in serving. Every act of serving that you and I do that's done in love for Christ and, and in love for others brings the most satisfying and lasting joy that we could possibly ever experience. That's really the way it is. And it's true in every circumstance that God gives you the opportunity to serve. Whether it's at home with your family, loving on your children, or loving on your wife, or loving on your husband, or on the job with your co-workers, or those who work for you, where it's not all about you, but it's you serving them, doing everything you can to help them succeed, or, or with your neighbors, where you care about them, and where you're ready to help when help is needed or with fellow believers, where you care for them and for their spiritual growth. See, it's true for every situation. There's no real lasting and satisfying joy when it's all about yourself. But you can have the best joy ever in serving others. Joy that is totally satisfying and joy that never ends. See, I, I think it's, I, really everybody, I, I, I think we could each write an equation for our life, one of two equations that we live by, okay? 
do it for myself equals no joy. Do it for others, and it equals joy. Satisfying and lasting joy. You know, you know the great thing about this, everybody, is that Jesus Christ, even with this, set the example for us. I love this statement in the 12th chapter of Hebrews where the writer said, let, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I got to confess something. You know, I memorize these verses and as many times as I've said them to myself, I don't think it really hit home with me what the joy was until I worked on this sermon. All the time I was thinking, you know what? The joy was that the day when he would ultimately be on the throne and be, be king of kings and lord of lords. That was the joy he had in front of him. That's what I was thinking, but you know what? That's not what it is. You know what it is? It's him seeing what can happen in our lives as a result of his death and his resurrection. That's what gives him the joy. It's the joy of seeing what can happen to us now in the joy of him knowing that forever, all of eternity, we're going to be able to live in the glory and the joy and perfection. Isn't that incredible? Wow. Speaking of songs, there's a song I learned as a child with the title Joy. I'm guessing some of you learned it. It goes like this, Jesus and others and you. What a wonderful way to spell joy. J is for Jesus, for he has first place. O is for others you meet face to face. Why is for you in whatever you do, put yourself last and spell joy. You know, it's true, isn't it? I mean, it's really true. Joy comes from knowing whose you are. I belong to Jesus, Son of God, and knowing who you are. I'm a servant. I'm a servant. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to you for loving us and sending your son to this earth. And Lord Jesus, we're thankful to you, so thankful that you came to serve and to give your life as a sacrifice for our sin to make it possible for us to, to enter into a, the most joy-filled life we could possibly have and to experience the joy of your presence in the glory of heaven forever. We praise you, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.